Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. Supreme Court is now weighing today's arguments in a major case that could radically reshape the way federal elections are run across the United States. Here's NPR's Hansi Lowong. This redistricting case out of North Carolina could end up with the U.S. Supreme Court endorsing a once fringe theory. In its most extreme form, it claims state legislatures can control how congressional elections are conducted with no limits from state courts or state constitutions. Justice Elena Kagan said it's a theory with big consequences. This is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way big governmental decisions are made in this country. And you might think that it gets rid of all those checks and balances at exactly the time when they are needed most. The court is expected to rule by early July. Anzi Luang, NPR News, Washington. Incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock's victory over Republican Herschel Walker in yesterday's runoff affirms Georgia as a battleground state for 2024. NPR's Ron Elving looks at what the win means legislatively for Democrats who've expanded their majority in the Senate by one seat. Now they have 51 votes and they will now have majorities on the committees. The committees have been evenly split between the parties. That makes it harder to do anything on those committees. And particularly, it makes it harder to approve presidential nominations for various executive positions around the government and judicial appointments. So this will mean many more Biden-appointed judges and the federal courts uh, because of this 51-seat majority. NPR's Ron Elving reporting. In Germany, 25 people have been arrested in raids across that country over what authorities say was a far-right plot to overthrow the German government. Here's the BBC's Jenny Hill. Before first light, thousands of armed police raided homes, offices, even military barracks. They've interrupted what prosecutors believe was a terror cell, intent on overthrowing the German government. It may sound extraordinary, fantastical, but prosecutors say the group was serious and extremely dangerous. They'd allegedly set up a military arm and were actively trying to recruit from the German police force and army. Time magazine's name, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, its Person of the Year for 2022. NPR's Rachel Traceman reports he's not the only honoree. Zelensky shares the title with, quoting Time, the spirit of Ukraine. The magazine is honoring the wartime president for leading Ukraine's defense at home and keeping it top of mind abroad. Time notes that the former actor and comedian draws on a unique set of skills and credits his courage with inspiring others to take up the fight. That's Rachel Treisman reporting. Dow Jones Industrial Average up slightly, ending the day at 33,597. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Federal Bureau of Prisons failed to protect Whitey Bulger's health and safety before his death in custody in 2018. That's the finding of an investigation by the Office of the Inspector General into Bulger's care and his transfer to the West Virginia facility where he was killed. The Justice Department report says management f- failures made by Bulger's uh, made Bulger's transfer to the prison widely known within the facility. Bulger was beaten to death hours after he arrived. Three prisoners are charged in the killing. Governor-elect Maura Healey plans to celebrate her election victory with an inaugural celebration at TD Garden. Her transition team says it'll happen on the night of January 5th, just a few hours after she's sworn into office. No other details yet on how to get tickets. Gasoline prices are increasingly falling in Massachusetts. AAA Northeast puts the average statewide cost of a gallon of regular at $3.63. That is down 11 cents from 
last week. In the forecast, 59 degrees now. Look for more clouds, more rain through the next several hours. Overnight tonight, clouds should gradually dissipate, and we should have lows of about 43 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunshine, highs around 51. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 405. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks. We are so happy to say that this fundraiser is over tonight, and we know you're happy to hear that too. But what we'll be more happy to hear about is your phone call, your pledge of support at WBUR, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Yes, and what a difference a day makes. Yesterday at this time, Lisa, we were way behind urging listeners to help us to dig out of a hole. Well, you did. Thank you. But this fundraiser still has three hours to go, and we still have some money to raise. So please, we'd like to keep the momentum going and finish as strong as we possibly can. All of this money translates into the news, the programming that you depend on. Think of all those times when you couldn't get out of your car because of a story that just kept you there. Think of all the ways WBUR keeps you company in the morning on your way to work, keeps you informed. That's what we're asking you to support right now by uh, calling uh, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Keep in mind this fundraiser does end in less than three hours. So if you haven't made uh, a contribution yet, now is the time to do it. And we are down to $15,000 left to raise. We've come so far thanks to individual phone calls. That is exactly what has done it. So thank you if you've called. If you haven't yet, you still have just a couple more hours. And uh, as uh, one incentive, get a pair of passes to the Harvard Art Museums as our thanks for your contribution of $10 a month. Your gift will bring you more of the journalism that you rely on and give, get you a, a wonderful time at one of the Harvard Art Museums with uh, Impressionist and Cubist paintings, uh, Buddhist sculpture, Chinese jades. It is a great take-in, and it's yours for your contribution of $10 a month to WBUR. If you can become a sustainer and give $15 a month, $20 a month, $5 a month. We would love to hear from you right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Think of the range of programming that you are that you are supporting when you call that number or go to WBUR.org. We just wrapped up uh, Radio Boston, part of our commitment to covering our local community. Very important. This show wasn't here just a few years ago. It is because of your support. Uh, we're about to segue into All Things Considered, which has been on the dial for a long time now, bringing you national news, international news. Again, we pay a lot of money to NPR for this program. You help us do that. So it's very, very important that we continue to hear from you for the next three hours so that we can make our goal. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And again, if you can make a contribution of $10 a month and you will receive in exchange a pair of passes to the Harvard Art Museums. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much if you have called. If you haven't, please do call now. Thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Dickens's time in Lowell, now through December 24th, MRT.org. And the Greater Boston Food Bank, help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where Georgia Democrat Raphael Warnock will return victorious to his U.S. Senate seat. He won yesterday's runoff against his Trump-backed challenger, Herschel Walker. It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. Joining us now to talk takeaways from this runoff is Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler. Hey there. Hey there. So I'm going to start with one of my takeaways. This is my home state. And it seems like this was a chance for Georgia to solidify its battleground status. Georgia, we know, flipped the Senate with a pair of runoffs two years ago, but different circumstances. Lay out what you think this runoff result will mean for Democrats. Well, the stakes are different than what you just mentioned when the Democrats flip control of the Senate. For starters, the control was already decided. This is a 51st seat for a Democrat, so there's a little bit less pressure. Um, but it's important still, Mary Louise, because there's no more power sharing on committees, no need for Vice President Harris to be a tiebreaker, and it's one more seat ahead of a less promising map in 2024. And in Georgia, it's a big deal as well because Republicans won at the statewide level. Democrats have won at the federal level. So it just keeps Georgia in the mix. I mean, it's really interesting to see. One of the reasons Warnock and Democrats won the last time is because the Republican base stayed home because of Donald Trump's false election fraud claims. This time, moderate Republicans stayed home or voted for Warnock because of the way Warnock made the election about comparing himself and his character against his opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I want to stay with Republicans in Georgia and some of the changes that they signed into effect last year, the sweeping voting overhaul, which shortened this runoff period from nine weeks to just four. How did changes like that impact voting in this race in the end? So Georgia did pass a 98-page voting law that shifted more people to voting early in person and less by mail or on election day. This shortened runoff window kicked that into overdrive. Nearly 1.9 million people voted before Election Day. That led to longer lines at fewer early voting sites and also to a huge Election Day turnout as people waited until Tuesday and hoped they could have a shorter wait. Early voting also made a big difference in counties that were able to offer more days. Notably, more people voted on those optional days, mainly in urban Democratic strongholds, than the final margin of victory between Walker and Warnock. And... Let's talk about what this might mean for Georgia politics moving forward, because these midterms have been a mixed bag. As you know, Republicans, including the governor, Brian Kemp, won in the general election. But then, of course, you have Warnock and Democrats notching this victory in the runoff. Well, Georgia will definitely remain a key player on the national stage for the next several years. The Democrats are pushing to have it be an earlier state in the 2024 presidential primary calendar, and they might hold their convention here. But the party's still struggling with state-level elections. Republicans see both positives and negatives of Donald Trump's continued Mm -hmm. influence. It's safe to say the battles in Georgia reflect the future of American politics. Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. In Germany, police have arrested 25 people they believe were plotting to overthrow the government. One of the things that they were allegedly planning to do, storm the German parliament, the Bundestag. The suspects are members of various far-right extremist groups, some even inspired by QAnon. And we're joined now by Esme Nicholson from Berlin, who has more details. Hey, Esme. 
Hi. Okay, so these arrests, I know that they occurred during raids across Germany this morning and police investigations are still underway. But what can you tell us about the suspects so far and what they were allegedly planning to do? Well, the raids targeted 52 people suspected of plotting a violent coup against the government that was to include targeted killings of politicians and senior public servants. Federal prosecutors say there are indications the group was planning to storm the Bundestag with a small army. And uh, police have detained 25 of the suspects who come from a number of far-right groups, including the so-called Reichsbürger, which is a movement uh, that doesn't recognise the modern German state and wants to abolish democracy. Others, others are members of the so-called Querdenker scene, which is a QAnon-inspired movement and really emerged during the pandemic and consists mainly of radicalised corona deniers um, who adhere to conspiracy theories. And I understand that the alleged leader of all these disparate groups is someone who goes by Prince Heinrich the Thirteenth. Who is this person? Yes, according to prosecutors, a 71-year-old man who goes by the name of Prince Heinrich XIII of Royce was allegedly going to be installed as the new leader of Germany. He's a descendant of Germany's monarchy, which of course was abolished by the Weimar Republic a century ago. But this ringleader rejects any form of German Republic and doesn't recognise the fact that his title is meaningless in today's Germany. Prosecutors say that he had started to nominate ministers for a post-coup government, uh, including a former German army paratrooper as head of his military arm. They also say he contacted Russian officials in a bid to involve them in his new order in Germany, but that there is no indication that there was a positive reaction to that request. Mm. And we're hearing now that these suspects have strong links to Germany's security services. What do we know about that? Well, the federal prosecutor didn't go into detail about this during his press conference today, but the German press is citing unnamed intelligence sources who say an active Bundeswehr soldier, an active armed forces soldier, and a number of reservists are under investigation. The active soldier is reportedly a member of the KSK, which is the German army's elite force, uh, where far-right sympathisers have previously been discovered. And according to these sources, one of the raids this morning took place at their barracks, although prosecutors are yet to confirm or deny this. A number of police officers and former soldiers are also believed to be among those under investigation. But again, there's no confirmation from federal prosecutors on this particular point. Prosecutors did, however, confirm that a sitting Berlin judge was arrested this morning. Prosecutors believe she was to be installed as the new justice minister. Wow. Okay, well, right-wing extremism is not new in Germany, of course. How much of a surprise was today's news to people there? Well, the Reichsburger scene is widely known about and considered dangerous. Uh, the QAnon-inspired Querdenker are also very vocal. So it doesn't come as a surprise here. That said, you know, this was the biggest terrorism raid in, I think, living memory. Mm. More than 3,000 officers were involved. And uh, the details are pretty chilling. So we're seeing a crackdown on the far right. Uh, and today, Germany's domestic intelligence chief, 
Thomas Haldenwang said the Reichsbürger scene has seen a significant uptick in membership just over the past year. Um, domestic intelligence believes there are about 21,000 members. That might seem like a small number, perhaps, uh, among 80 million Germans, uh, but they are taking the threat seriously. What isn't clear at this stage of the investigation, though, is just how capable this group would have been in their aims to stage a coup and, and how many weapons they had actually amassed. Chilling. That is Esme Nicholson reporting from Berlin. Thank you, Esme. Thank you for having me. Now, here's a question for all the parents out there. Would you be able to pick your child's cry out of a lineup? It's not as easy as you might think. Only 40% of us human mothers are able to recognize our own baby's cries 24 hours after birth. That's according to one study. Sheep take 24 hours as well. Goats take 48 hours to pick out the bleats of their own kids. But a new study suggests that a different mammal has the rest of us beat. Cape fur seal mothers can recognize their pups' cries as early as two hours after birth. They are just the best. Isabelle Charrier is a researcher at the French National Center for Scientific Research. She had an inkling these seals develop rapid vocal recognition because they are packed together in gigantic colonies. They have to find each other among thousands of individuals, and sometimes several hundreds of thousands. To investigate this ability, her team crawled through the sand at a Cape Fur seal colony in Namibia, crawling so as not to startle the animals, causing a seal stampede. Soon after seals gave birth, they would train their microphones on the pups to record their calls. Then they played back those recordings for the mothers through a speaker. When they played a call from someone else's pup, the female will not respond. But when they played the mother, her own pup's call, they check their pup. They smell it. They say, okay, I can hear your voice, but you are just in front of me. So they, they are a bit confused, so they call back, but then they check if the pup they have in front of them, it's theirs. It wasn't just the mothers who recognized calls. The researchers did the same experiment in reverse, playing mothers' calls to the pups. And when they played calls from someone else's mom... They don't even look because they're very young and for them it seems it's quite difficult to localize the sound source. Then when you play back the call of their mothers, then they become more interested and most of the time they call back. They found that pups could recognize their own mom's cries just four to six hours after birth, faster than other mammals. For us, it was a big surprise. The findings were published this week by the Royal Society. Charlier says the fact that pups develop this ability so early, without hearing many calls from their mother after birth, means they must be listening from inside the womb. So during all the pregnancy, he will be able to hear his mother's voice. So we think it's probably a learning process that starts much before the birth. Similar perhaps to what happens in humans. <laughs> so even though seals may have us bested at recognizing our young, it's a good reminder that even before birth, Children are always listening. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving in Melrose and at BuckaloosGeneralStore.com. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, China's leader arrives in Saudi Arabia for a summit, sending a message about China's aspirations in the region. And the Game Awards celebrate the best of the best from the world of video games. Not a lot of movement on Wall Street today. The Dow ended flat at 33,598. S&P notched a fifth day of losses. It was down two-tenths of a percent to close at 3934. The Nasdaq lost about a half percent to end the day at 10,959. In the forecast, Lots of gray out there. Look for a thick cloud cover through the evening hours. Lots of showers, too. And then eventually, the clouds should break up. Overnight lows about 44. Tomorrow, sunny skies, relatively mild, about 51 degrees for a high. 59 in Boston at 422. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This is 90.9 WBUR. I want to give you a brief update on our fund drive. It is the last day of our fundraiser. These are the last hours of the final fundraiser of the year, and we are hoping that if you have yet to make a contribution, you'll do it now, a tax-deductible contribution, at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks. And Anthony, thanks to our very generous <coughs> listeners and loyal listeners, we have made great ground today. And we are down to, I think, $12,000 left to raise. It's really, really exciting. You know, this funding model uh, that asks you to give what you can, it's not only effective and fair, it's also intrinsic to who we are, uh, to the kind of journalism that we produce. Because you support WBUR, we are not owned by commercial interests. Uh, We are not lorded over by corporate power. That frees us to do the kind of fact-based journalism Uh, at a time when that's more important than ever. So please, uh, thank you if you have already donated. If not, we have a little over two and a half hours to go, and as Lisa said, a little more money to raise. It's really important that we hit our goal. So help us finish strong by calling 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We're looking for a monthly contribution, whatever you can afford, whether it's five, 10, 20, $30 more if you can afford it. That's going to help us uh, finish strong and really help set us up uh, for the coming year. So again, 1-800-909-9287. We are looking for your tax-deductible gift right now, and it will come back to you. Whatever you decide to give WBR will come back to you in the form of more stories, more conversations that matter to you, more events at City Space, our wonderful performance space downstairs from where we are right now. Uh, take a look at uh, at the City Space event calendar at WBR.org if you haven't yet. And while you're at WBR.org, look at everything we have to offer, including the podcast. This is a, a station that has grown so much really carefully as well, uh, doing what we are intended to do, and that is give you news and information 24-7, the most accountable news that's out there. So we know that you rely on it. We take that reliance seriously. Please help pay for it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Please call now. And Lisa, you mentioned city space. You mentioned local programs. You mentioned podcasts. Just three examples. A lot of these things weren't even here uh, 10, 
15 longer. Lisa and I have been around for a while. This station has grown. It's become a major force in the public radio ecosystem. It produces local and national uh, programming, um, as well as live events on stage, as well as podcasts. That's all because of your support. So we can't do it. We could not have done it without you. And we won't be able to continue to do it without you. And uh, we're gratified that we've uh, done as well so far in this fundraiser. Our aim now is to uh, finish these last couple of hours as strong as we can with you going to the phone right now and calling 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And we don't take for granted that we will make that final $12,000. We are here asking you just as we did on day one to consider everything you get from WBUR. And I want to say, I've just been looking at the rundown. We get an early rundown of things that are going to be airing, or that's the plan anyway, for the next um, uh, hour and a half now. And um, they're always great offerings, stories that I want to listen to. And I'll think, well, when I get off the air, I'm going to listen back to that story, like the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 17 uh, last moon mission. That's the moon mission, that the uh, last one that put a human on the moon. So many things to choose from on WBUR. We're going to be hearing from CDC Director Rachel Walensky. All the stories uh, that you appreciate, that you may not even know you're going to be interested in, but you will once you start listening. Pledge your support for that. 1-800-909-9287 or go online, as many people have, at WBUR.org. Again, thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. This past summer, President Biden went to Saudi Arabia, addressed a summit of Arab leaders, and made a promise. The promise was that America would stay engaged in the region, not leave a vacuum to be filled by Russia or China. Well, today, China's leader, Xi Jinping, arrived in the Saudi capital for meetings and his own summit on Friday. The visit offers a glimpse into how the U.S.-China rivalry is playing out in the Middle East. NPR's Aya Butrawi joins me now from Dubai. Hey there, Aya. Hi. Hi. All right. I want to start with the two leaders at the center here, Xi Jinping and his host, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Why might each of these men want this summit now? So for Xi, this is his first trip abroad since rare protests broke out in China against his government's COVID-19 policies. So this is a chance for him to bring back focus to China's power and its influence in a part of the world that is crucial to Beijing's economic survival because of oil. This relationship is also based on a mutual understanding that neither side is going to be raising concerns over human rights. You'll recall that President Biden did raise the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and his meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman over the summer. Khashoggi was killed by Saudi agents in Turkey four years ago. So for Prince Mohammed bin Salman, this visit is another opportunity to move beyond the global outcry over that killing and to demonstrate that he's able to bring the world's most powerful leaders to his doorstep. Okay, so that's what each of these leaders might be looking for. What about substantive issues? What does China want from the region? For one thing, China is the Gulf's biggest buyer of oil. The two are economically interdependent. 
China is also seeking a range of new investments in Saudi Arabia and to expand its footprint from East Asia to Europe. So it's going to be looking to invest in ports, tourism, mining, technology, and weapons. Um, Saudi Arabia is trying to move away from its dependence on oil exports, create its own nuclear program, create a local defense industry. And China is seen as a really important partner in all those industries. But at its core, this relationship is about energy security. I spoke with John Calabrese, who heads the Mideast Asia Project at the Middle East Institute in Washington. Insofar as the future of oil, I think we're looking at not just one decade, but several decades out before oil will be phased out you know, in any large consuming country, China being one of them. So, I mean, the bottom line here is that China is tethered to the Middle East, to the Gulf in particular, specifically because of its energy security needs. Stay with that point he just made about how China is tethered to the Middle East, uh, because I want to broaden this out. If you look at Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries, other Arab leaders, what are they looking for from this visit? So this is a region, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, that's being led by relatively young new leaders who are really trying to assert a new autonomy and independence. And what that means is that while they still heavily rely on the United States for their national security needs and their weapon sales, they're refusing to pick sides in this global competition between the United States on one side and China or Russia on the other. And Xi's visit is an example of how they refuse to be pulled to any one side. I've spoken to Gulf officials here over the years, and they've been saying that there's a perception that the United States is an unreliable partner and that there's major swings in foreign policy from Republicans to Democrats, and that continues to be a major concern for them. That uh, is NPR's Aya Batrawi reporting from Dubai. Thank you. Thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, providing fully equipped BL2 lab space for biotechnology startups right next to Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock's re-election in Georgia's runoff vote sets the stage for Democrats to now exercise their clear 51 to 49 majority power. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer celebrated the Warnock victory over Herschel Walker this morning at the U.S. Capitol. Our committee chairs have more flexibility on legislation. The number of times chairs came to me and said, I'd like to move this bill forward but in a 10-10 committee, I can't do it. It'll be tied. That's all going to change because we'll have the advantage on every committee. Schumer says it will also be easier to move judicial appointments through the U.S. Senate. Senate Republicans have inserted language in a must-pass defense spending bill to remove the COVID vaccine mandate from military personnel. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports GOP lawmakers had long been trying to reverse that mandate. Language in the National Defense Authorization Act released Tuesday includes a provision to rescind the vaccine mandate despite objections from the Pentagon. Republican senators like Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee had threatened to hold up the spending bill. She echoed unfounded concerns raised by other senators on Fox News. Bear in mind, COVID vaccine is not like um, any of those vaccines you think of with polio or smallpox. This is a shot. Blackburn's office has not clarified what makes the COVID vaccine different from at least eight other service members must take. The legislation would not reinstate those who were discharged for refusing to take the COVID vaccine. 
For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is Time Magazine's Person of the Year for proving, quote, that courage can be as contagious as fear. On Wall Street, the Dow gained one and a half points, the Nasdaq down 56. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A group of Boston parents is challenging uh, changes made to the city's uh, admissions criteria at Boston's three exam schools. The new policy admits top-performing students from each of the city's neighborhoods. Today, the group of parents argued in federal appeals court the policy unfairly discriminates against certain students. Here's WBUR's Max Larkin. Since 2021, geography has helped a wider range of students enter Boston's exam schools. But a parent coalition maintains that it serves as a proxy for race and excludes deserving white and Asian American students. Kay Hodge represented Boston's school committee at the hearing. She argued the plaintiffs are trying to perpetuate what was a broken status quo. Because whites and Asians were overrepresented the assumption is, is they have a right to continue to be overrepresented. And if they lose seats, that's discriminatory. The exam schools, especially the Boston Latin School, have admitted more black and Latino students since the policy changed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. An Acton man has been sentenced to seven years in prison for his attempts to steal from the federal government. A federal jury convicted Christopher Condren for his attempts to defraud the United States of more than $50 million. He was sentenced yesterday. Condren was accused of submitting fraudulent federal grant applications seeking reimbursement for energy construction projects that did not exist. The Boston City Council is looking for solutions to a lifeguard shortage affecting city pools. The Boston Centers for Youth and Families says it's working to fill nearly 30 full-time lifeguard positions. The shortage means the indoor pools at four community centers are closed. City Councilor Aaron Murphy says it's important to come up with solutions ahead of the hot summer months. These closures are a disservice to our neighborhoods. We saw over the summer with you know, heat waves, a hottest August on record, that many of our neighborhoods, for many different reasons, they didn't have a pool open. In addition to lifeguard shortages, five other Boston Centers for Youth and Families pools are closed for repairs. That means half the center's pools are non-operational. The city of Boston is launching a new tourism campaign focused on drawing people to the city year-round. The new advertising campaign is called Boston Never Gets Old and stresses the timelessness of the city. As part of the effort, the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau is also changing its name to Meet Boston. 59 degrees now in the Boston area. Thick cover of clouds, plenty of puddles on the ground through the evening and the first part of tonight. Finally, clouds should break up by dawn. Overnight lows about 44 degrees. Then tomorrow looks like a really nice day. Sunny, right about 51 for a high. More sunshine Friday, but chilly about 43 degrees tops. It's 436. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. China on Wednesday announced a series of new steps to, quote, optimize its approach to the pandemic. In reality, the government is moving away decisively from the draconian measures that have defined its zero-COVID approach for the past three years, and that also sparked angry street protests a couple weeks ago. To bring us up to speed here, we're joined now by China Affairs correspondent John Ruich. Hey, John. Hi there. Okay, so tell us more about what the government announced today. The government's National Health Commission released a 10-point plan, and one of the things it did one of the things it did was state that the virus's ability to cause serious illness has diminished. This is something officials have only huh. recently started to say, so it's pretty significant that was in there. It also included uh, several policy changes, and there's a couple that I think are worth flagging. One is that from now on, people who test positive but are asymptomatic or don't have serious symptoms, which is the vast majority of cases in China these days, they're going to be allowed to quarantine at home. Until now. Uh, all positive cases were forced into centralized quarantine facilities. Testing is going to be cut back. And another thing is that these digital health codes that we've been talking about on smartphones that have become ubiquitous in China for contact tracing and showing test results, those aren't going to be required any longer to go into most buildings and for domestic travel. Okay, so talk about like how significant this move is. How much of a U-turn is this? I really don't think it's an exaggeration to say that these are some of the biggest changes that we've seen in three years. I mean, uh, they come after 20 others last month. I mean, in China, there's been this very real risk, for instance, of people in hazmat suits showing up at your house and hauling you or a family member off to quarantine against your will if you test Mm -hmm. positive without any recourse. I mean, that risk seems diminished now. And I can tell you from experience that it is a huge source of anxiety for people in China. Um, Also, looser rules on domestic travel are key. You know, health codes often restricted people from going from one city or province to another. Also, people just didn't want to take the risk of traveling because they feared, you know, getting to their location, being stranded by a lockdown or thrown in quarantine. The changes that they're introducing now seem to have the potential to really help the economy, which I think is a key point. You know, the day before these rules were announced, uh, top leaders met in Beijing to discuss the economy and uh, to come up with plans for giving it a boost next year. And optimizing COVID controls was a big part of the discussion. What about vaccinating the elderly? Like we keep hearing that vaccination rates among old people are pretty low in China, right? Yes, they are not as high as for others. The National Health Commission uh, highlighted something that that officials have been mentioning, which is the need to accelerate vaccination among people over 60. That age group is generally at risk and they have lower vaccination rates than others. People seem to be heeding the call. NPR spoke with a couple of folks at a vaccination center in Beijing just a couple days ago uh, who said it had actually been tough for themselves to get appointments because of demand. And uh, more broadly, this sort of change in approach to the pandemic seems to be welcomed. Here's a man in Beijing we spoke with who wanted to be identified only by his surname, which was Xu. He says these changes uh, have come pretty suddenly, uh, but they're in line with what people wanted and what people have been hoping for, and they're a good surprise. He's also not afraid of COVID-19. Okay, so tell us what we can expect in the next few weeks as China tries to implement these really big changes. Yeah, I mean, it's a shift uh, underway in China now to living with the virus, and that is a huge change. Uh, And we've seen elsewhere that this means that case numbers will rise. And experts are pretty confident that they're going to rise to levels in China that they've never had to deal with before. So the question is really how high and how quickly can the government lift the vaccination rate in order to minimize the fallout? China's really now in a race against Omicron. That is NPR's John Ruich. Thank you, John. You're welcome.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Downtown Crossing Boston, with shopping, theater, fine dining, a holiday marketplace, and more. The magic of the season is here. It's time to celebrate. DowntownBoston.org. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st, tickets at BostonBallet.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. A quick update in our fund drive. There is uh, $10,000 now. $10,000 stands between us and the end of a successful fund drive, this end-of-the-year fundraiser. So thank you to all of those who've called in so far. And if you haven't, if you need an additional incentive right now, just know that your money can go twice as far because we have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table from some generous listeners to WBUR. They will double your gift just until, for about another four minutes, actually, until 445 or until we raise $2,000, whichever comes first. So here's the number, 1-800-909-9287, or pledge online at WBUR.org. Again, just the next four minutes, this is a great opportunity for you to double the amount of your donation and help us finish this uh, fall, this fundraiser, as strong as possible. Uh, $10,000 to go, that really feels like we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's thanks to the many people who have already donated. But we still have, oh, I don't know, an hour and, no, two hours plus to go. Um, and so we and we still have money to raise. So we want to keep asking you to keep your eye on the ball, stay on the team, and help us finish strong. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven or wbur.org. Please do make the phone call right now because we are closing in on the end of the fund drive. It's over at seven o'clock tonight. Don't let it end without you. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven wbur.org. I'm Scott Simon. Your monthly contribution to WBUR says that you value journalism that keeps you informed. You value reporting that's rooted in your community. You value independent journalism as the foundation of our democracy. More than what your contribution says about you is what it can do. Your monthly contribution to WBUR makes the station's independent journalism possible. Go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909 9287. And for those of you who listen on the weekends and hear Scott Simon, think about how much you'd miss WBUR if Scott Simon wasn't there, if if uh, Anthony Brooks uh, wasn't or weren't, he wasn't here to help you understand what's happening in elections before the elections, after the elections. I mean, the, the kind of uh, expertise we have here is really unbelievable and unmatched. So if you agree, and that's one of the reasons that you listen to WBUR, then please pledge your support right now. Again, while we have this match on the table, double your dollars, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And I think Scott Simon said it really well. He talked about the value of independent journalism as being one of the foundations of our democracy. I don't think that's an understatement, especially these days. We've been through a really a difficult period in this country with people just turning their backs on all kinds of democratic principles. Um, I'm uh, glad that we still have a free press and we still have an independent press to call that stuff out. That's the kind of uh, news um, 
journalism that we believe in to the core of our souls here at WBUR. And the funding model is inextricably related to that. Because we are independently funded by you primarily, we can maintain that independence. So it's so important right now uh, that we finish this fund drive uh, as, as um, strong as possible. And uh, we only have a couple of hours to go. We still have money to raise. So Join us uh, if you can help. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And think about what part of, of uh, the remaining, uh, I think it is $10,000, unless it's a little bit less right now. Uh, think of the remaining part of that that you can um, uh, contribute to to help us end this fundraiser successfully. Maybe $10 a month, $20 a month, $30 a month. It is going to be matched dollar for dollar right now. If you make a one-time gift, that will be matched as well. one 800 909 9287wbur.org. We're asking you to contribute only what WBUR is worth to you. If you can't contribute, we understand that. If you can, this is the time to do it because the fund drive is over at 7 o'clock tonight. 1-800-909-9287wbur.org. WBUR supporters include the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And Harvard Square Holiday Fair at 33 Dunster Street. Local crafts for gift giving, December 9th to 11th and 16th to 18th, harvardsquareholidayfair.com. For movies, we have the Oscars. For music, the Grammys. And tomorrow night, streaming live and for free, one of the biggest events in the world of video games, the Game Awards. Jeff Keeley is the brainchild and the host, and he's with us now. Hi there. Hi. You have made a career out of video game journalism and award shows, so I'm hoping you can just take us behind the scenes a little bit. How did you wind up spending so much of your life celebrating video games? <laughs> it's a long story, but it started when I was a, a young kid in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I started as a, as a budding game journalist when I was 13 and 14 years old, uh, writing articles about video games online on CompuServe, which was a pre-internet service. And as part of that, I got to work on the world's first, I think, video game award show back in 1994 called Cybermania 94. And I got to go to the event, which is at Universal Studios Hollywood at the Conan the Barbarian stunt stage. And I got to go with my dad and it made such an impression on me to be in this room where people were celebrating video games. So yeah, I've really been on this 30 year journey since then to try and create something that celebrates games uh, on, on, in the right way, which you know they are the biggest, most powerful form of entertainment in the world. So I wanna talk about this year's award ceremony and specifically the game of the year category. What kinds of games define 2022? Well, 2022 was a really interesting year for the gaming industry. There were a lot of big releases early in the year, and it got a little bit quiet, but just picked up recently with the release of God of War Ragnarok, um, which is an incredible game for PlayStation, the sequel to uh, the game that won Game of the Year in 2018, God of War. Uh, the, the other big game that everyone's really talking about is Elden Ring. It came out in uh, February. It's based on a world created by George R.R. Martin and made by From Software, a Japanese studio that's known for really kind of hardcore, intense uh, role-playing games. Uh, so those are two of the sort of big flagship games. Uh, and what I love about this year, too, is that there are a lot of 
what we call new intellectual properties or IPs in the game industry. It's not just all sequels. Uh, you know, obviously God of War is a sequel, but Elden Ring's a brand new world, right? From the creator of Game of Thrones. And then you have a game about a cat and there's another indie game called Cult of the Lamb, which is about uh, a crazy little lamb that goes around fighting with a sword. So, um, you know, what's fun about games is that there's always something new every year. The Game Awards is filled with these really big announcements and trailers of, of new and upcoming video games, and a lot of people tune in for that. But I've also heard some people say that it can sort of feel like a commercial. So mm -hmm. as you think about it, how do you balance making something that is entertaining to watch for an audience while also serving that promotional role? Yeah, that's the constant uh, sort of balance that we have to strike with the Game Awards is blending awards with this forward-looking content. And the great thing about games is that they always get better every year because gaming sits at the intersection of technology and entertainment. So the games this year are great, but the games next year are going to be even better. And whenever we poll the fans, I just did a poll last week on Twitter, and most of the fans say what really excites them about the show are the world premieres. That's what get, gets people in the front door is sort of this uh, excitement and urgency around seeing new game announcements. So that leads me to ask then, if we were to have this conversation again in, say, five years or ten years, what do you hope the future of the Game Awards looks like then? Well, my goal when I started the show was I really wanted to, you know, build the world's largest award show that happened to be about video games. And I hope that, you know, uh, people always joke about EGOT, right, where a, a talent will get, you know, an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. And I always, uh, you know, I hope we'll eventually grow to the EGOT, where it's just, you know, a Grammy and Game Award is in the mix on that, right? And the idea that we are sort of one of those shows that is seen as being, you know, the, the most important sort of recognition for an industry um, and in the same, you know, conversation as all those other ma major award shows. So that's where I think we're on a path to getting there, and I hope we continue to grow and expand in that direction. Jeff Keeley, host and creator of the Game Awards, streaming tomorrow evening online. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Appreciate it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The number of traffic fatalities across the country continues to rise. In fact, traffic deaths hit a 16-year high in 2021, even though people were driving less because of the pandemic. Safety advocates say most states are not doing enough to protect drivers, passengers, or pedestrians. And they're urging leaders to implement more safety measures. From Chicago, NPR's David Shaper reports. I'm standing at the intersection of Illinois routes 22 and 21, also known as Half Day Road in Milwaukee Avenue in Chicago's northern suburbs. It's a place where local police say they are increasingly seeing drivers going at higher and higher speeds. You know, we've really seen an increase uh, the onset of the pandemic, through the pandemic, and even post-pandemic. We've seen a lot of increased speeds, a lot of reckless drivers, a lot of individuals uh, just excessively going fast on the roadway. Christopher Cavelli is a deputy chief with the Lake County, Illinois Sheriff's Office. Just a couple weeks ago, we arrested somebody who was driving intoxicated, and they were going three times the speed limit. Three times? Yeah, about 120 in a 40-mile-an-hour zone. Oh, my God. Yeah, just flying. And Cavelli says those higher speeds are having devastating consequences as serious traffic crashes here are up. It's a trend that mirrors what's happening all across the country. 
Federal statistics show that nearly 43,000 people died on the nation's roads and highways last year, up almost 20% from 2019. And it's the highest number of traffic fatalities since 2005. Millions more people are injured each year, even though cars are getting safer. Kathy Chase is president of the group Advocates for Highway and Traffic Safety. This horrific toll must serve as a blaring wake-up call to policymakers at all levels of government to take action to reverse this upward trajectory. Advocates for Highway and Traffic Safety has released its 20th annual Roadmap to Safety report, detailing more than a dozen traffic safety measures they're encouraging state legislatures, Congress, and regulatory agencies to enact. They also grade each state on their progress in adopting safety recommendations. Only five, Washington, Oregon, Louisiana, Maryland, and Rhode Island, along with the District Columbia, get the group's highest rating of green. Most of the rest, 36 states, are rated yellow, indicating needing improvement. But nine states are rated red as dangerously lagging in adopting traffic safety measures, including Florida, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Missouri, as well as Montana, Nebraska, the Dakotas, and Wyoming. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, chair of the House Highways Subcommittee, says improving roadway safety requires a shift in priority. For too long, we have accepted preventable traffic deaths as inevitable, prioritize speed over safety, and focus solely on moving cars quickly. The group also raises concerns about the safety of pedestrians and cyclists. Deaths among people walking and biking are up 62% over the last decade. On the bright side, the safety advocates say the bipartisan infrastructure law enacted last year includes provisions to encourage states to fix and rebuild roads, highways, and bridges, so they're not just smoother, but safer, too. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. So when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. We want to thank everybody who has given a call to WBUR or pledged online. Thousands and thousands of people have, and you have brought us down to just $6,000 left to raise. I say just 6000 but we take nothing for granted and really hope that if you haven't made a phone call now or pledged online, you will. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks. That uh, $6,000 to go is terrific news. It means we are reaching the end, but we've still got to raise that money. 
money to stay on track. So we're really urging you to help us finish this uh, fundraiser uh, as strongly as we can by giving us a call at 1-800-909-9287. You can also pledge online. When folks call in, we've been collecting some testimonials from people about why they support WBUR. And here's one uh, that caught our attention from a listener. Public radio is my go-to source for everything that matters in my life, everything that keeps me well-informed and up-to-date about health, politics, the arts, education, world events, and especially honesty and truth. I need you to be uh, there for us every day. So that sums up pretty well uh, a pretty compelling set of reasons to call right now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org as we try to wrap up this fundraiser as well and as quickly uh, as we can. Let's hear right now from more of your fellow listeners about why they appreciate and support WBUR. It's important for me to be a WBUR member because it doesn't seem right that I would be getting all of this information, all of this news, and find joy in some of the other programs if I wasn't paying for it and I wasn't supporting it. It's a nice opportunity to participate in the programming and the ideas that the station promotes. I think we all get to say something with our money, even if we give modest amounts. With that money, we make something happen. Your modest monthly gift will make a meaningful difference. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Your gift does indeed make something happen. Uh, the stories that you're going to be hearing in the next hour of All Things Considered, the stories that you've just been hearing about traffic fatalities uh, being at a 16-year high and safety advocates uh, revealing measures that they say could reduce crashes. Going to be hearing from Nina Totenberg coming up about the Supreme Court hearing arguments about the validity of a controversial theory that opponents say would upend electoral politics. So much that happens in the news you hear about on WBUR, so much many things that are going on that you hear about uh, that you wouldn't hear about anywhere else. That's what we're asking you to pledge for right now as we count our way down to the end of this fund drive. It's ending at 7 o'clock tonight. We would like to have your phone call. We'd like to include you in on our supporting listeners who are making WBR happen every day. 1-800-909-9287-WBR.org. We have less than $6,000 to go. And as our listeners said, say something with your money because your money modest gift does help create something much, much bigger. It helps create the stories that you listen to. It helps us fund coverage of crucial stories uh, around our local community, around the nation, around the world. And uh, we can't do it without you. Very simply, we cannot do this uh, without you. Public radio depends on the public. You are our largest share of our funding. And so we're asking you right now. And by the way, um, here's one more inducement. Get a pair of passes to the Harvard Art Museums as our thanks for your contribution of $10 a month. Your gift will turn into more of the journalism you rely on. So give us a call, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And remember, we have both feet planted firmly outside the commercial marketplace. We are mission-driven, non-for-profit, independent journalism that is supported with your voluntary contribution. We do not uh, send you a bill and say pay up or 
get out. Uh, in fact, if you if you can't afford to give to WBUR, we understand that and hope you will give when you can. Uh, if it's not part of your budget now, we hope it will be eventually, and that you'll consider WBUR as an essential part of your life, because for so many people it is. And for, unfortunately, so many people, um, they don't give even though they listen. And we're hoping that you'll be among the participating listeners, those that keep us Keep us going, not just keep us strong, but keep us going. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I don't have the latest figure. I think it is around just under probably 6000 It is $6,000 we have left to raise in the fund drive. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. The fundraiser is over in two hours. Please make your pledge right now. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story, directed by Michael Showalter. In select theaters, everywhere Friday. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from Total Wine & More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russian President Vladimir Putin says Russia's war in Ukraine may continue for some time. Putin's comments appear to be a rare acknowledgement that Russia's military campaign has not gone as planned. NPR's Charles Maines has more from Moscow. Fielding questions from a Kremlin-backed Human Rights Council, President Putin admitted Russia's so-called special military operation in Ukraine had met unexpected challenges. Yes, it's possibly been a long process, said Putin, who went on to argue Moscow's annexation of four regions of Ukraine was already a significant result. The international community has denounced that move as illegal. Putin also denied persistent reports the government was planning a second wave of mobilization to bolster its forces, saying there was no need. Putin said only half of 300,000 troops called up amid a series of Russian military setbacks last fall are currently serving in and around Ukraine, leaving a significant reserve force at the ready. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The Justice Department's Inspector General is out with a report examining the circumstances surrounding the killing of notorious Boston mobster James Whitey Bulger at a federal prison in 2018. The watchdog found missed steps, but no malicious intent on the part of prison officials. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Convicted mobster James Whitey Bulger was beaten to death in his cell at Hazleton Federal Prison hours after being transferred there in 2018. Now, after a long-running investigation, the Justice Department's inspector general says in a new report that it found missteps by the Federal Bureau of Prisons in Bulger's transfer to Hazleton, but no malicious intent by BOP employees. The watchdog did find that more than 100 BOP officials knew of Bulger's transfer, and that Hazleton inmates learned of it days ahead of time and were betting on how long Bulger would survive. 
Ultimately, the inspector general is recommending at least six BOP officials face disciplinary action. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Second gentleman Doug Emhoff held a roundtable discussion with Jewish leaders to discuss anti-Semitism and the rise of hate speech toward the Jewish community. NPR's Hamina Bustillo has more. The second gentleman gathered members of Jewish advocacy organizations and members of the Biden administration on Wednesday. Amid a rising surge of anti-Jewish comments involving prominent figures, he made it clear he wants to address any rising hate towards the Jewish community. Let me be clear. Words matter. People are no longer saying the quiet parts out loud. They are literally screaming them. In remarks, he applauded some recent Biden administration actions, such as a unity summit in September, the increase in funding for physical security of nonprofits and synagogues, and anti-hate positions within the administration. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, the White House. On Wall Street, stocks closed mixed today. The Dow up a point. The Nasdaq down 56 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Charlie Baker has pardoned three more people in his final month in office. All three requested pardons so they can carry firearms. This is Baker's fourth set of pardons and commutations this year, and since he took office, they bring the total to 16. The governor's council will have the final say on whether to approve the pardons. Boston University has finished construction of its so-called Jenga building near Kenmore Square. It is the largest net zero emissions building in Boston. The 19-story structure with its zigzag design will be temperature controlled by 31 underground geothermic wells. Its electricity comes from an agreement with the South Dakota Wind Farm. The building will house the university's computing and data science center. And the Red Sox will sign reliever Kenley Jansen to a two-year deal worth $32 million. That's according to multiple media reports. Jansen was with the Atlanta Braves last season. Before that, he pitched for the Dodgers for 11 seasons, and he's been named an all-star three times. In the forecast, cloudy and damp into the nighttime. Some showers and thunderstorms overnight tonight before clouds move out. Should be about 44 overnight. Then tomorrow, sunny and pretty nice, up around 51 degrees. Friday should bring back the sunshine, but it should be chilly only in the low 40s. Still 59 degrees now in Boston at 5.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. By calling this number now, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org is if you decide to pledge online. I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks and Anthony we have so many people to thank. Wish we could do it individually, but do. it would we take do. a long time because there are thousands of people who have brought us this far in our fun drive, which is ending at 7 o'clock tonight. you want to tell us how much they've raised? Yeah, here we go. I mean, thanks to so many people who have called in uh, or gone online at WBUR.org. We have raised $795,000 so, so far in this fundraiser. That is terrific. Thank you if you have contributed some of that money. That means we're just $5,000 away from crossing our goal line. So 
be a part of this. This is an important service for a lot of people, and you're one of them. So help us finish strong by giving us a call right now at 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. And we hope you will do that because we rely on you for the majority of our operating budget. For people who say, well, you know, they have other funders like the government, we get 3.7% of our budget from the government. And that is certainly not enough to operate on. We get the majority of our funding from you. That means individual phone calls. We were fortunate enough to have people calling in for a while. We were lagging behind, and we told you so. And thank you so much for rallying for us, as you did early today. And we are really grateful, but we haven't made the total 800000 yet. We still have 5000 to go, so please make the call right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We really can't stress enough that the way we raise money by asking directly to our listeners is so intrinsic to who we are and the journalism that we produce because you, because you support WBUR. That means we're not owned by commercial interests. We don't have those kinds of interests bearing down on us and telling us what we can and can't uh, cover. We bring the news to you as we see it. It's fact-based at a time when there are forces out there that would deny facts and weaken democracy. We have another view about journalism's role in all that. And you have a huge role to play in that. And we are so grateful. Um, So if you haven't given yet, we've got about two hours left, less than two hours to go in this fundraiser and just a few thousand dollars to go. So give us a call 1-800-909-9287. Donate what you can as generously as you can. You can also do it at WBUR.org. And you can become a monthly subscriber if you like, $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month. If you can do $100 a month, we would love that as well. But just please make a pledge in an amount that's comfortable for you and your budget. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. This is Ira Glass of This American Life from Public Radio International. One of the things that makes Public Radio different is the way that it's funded. We have the most idealistic system the fairest system, the best system in the world. That is, those of us who listen all the time, those of us who like the kinds of stories and shows and analysis and music and authors that are on this radio station every day, those of us who like that kind of thing, we all pitch in together, and that's how it stays on the air. Public radio equals public support. If you can help out, give a call. One of the great things about calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org is that your contribution has impact and you can hear the result every time you listen to WBUR. You can say, I took part in that. Um, I took part in this story at WBUR.org. I helped fund this event at City Space. I helped fund this podcast. You get a direct result or a direct return on your investment, whatever the investment is. 1-800-909-9287-W. And uh, just to make the point that your contribution, whatever you can afford, it does make a difference. Most of the contributions we get are modest. And yet here we are uh, approaching the end of this fundraiser. We've we've raised $795,000. So don't think for a minute that, oh, my $10 a month or whatever it is, isn't going to make a difference because it does It has and it will in the time that remains uh, of this fundraiser. So give us a call right now, 1-800-909-9287. 
Do it in support of the news programming that you count on. You can also do it at WBUR.org. And we hope you will do it right now and join the thousands of people who have called in already. Make a tax-deductible contribution right now to WBUR. We're counting our way down to the end of this fun drive. We are so grateful to everybody who's contributed. If you haven't, please be a contributing listener. We are so happy that you listen. We're even more happy when you realize that we count on your contribution to keep going. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you once again. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments today in the marquee case of the term, a case that could radically reshape the way federal elections are conducted across the country. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. At issue is the so-called independent state legislature theory, put forth in this case by the North Carolina Republican state legislature. If adopted, it would give state legislatures the power to put in place all manner of election laws and rules without any review by the state courts. At its most extreme, the theory could eliminate not just state judicial power over elections, but governor's vetoes, and it might allow state legislatures to certify presidential electors who were not approved by the voters, an idea that Donald Trump tried unsuccessfully to put forth in 2020. In the particular case before the justices, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled that the Republican-dominated state legislature in drawing new congressional districts after the 2020 census violated the state constitution with an extreme partisan gerrymander. During almost three hours of arguments, three camps of justices emerged today. The court's three most conservative justices, Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, favored some version of the independent state legislature theory. The three most liberal justices, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, did not. And somewhere in between were Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. First up was lawyer David Thompson representing the Republican state legislature. He told the court that the state courts have no authority under the U.S. Constitution to rule on congressional redistricting maps. Justice Jackson reacted with incredulity. Is it your argument that the state constitution has no role to play? That is our position. Thompson subsequently qualified that answer, contending that the state courts could review procedural issues, but not substantive ones. That distinction, however, seemed to baffle most of the justices. Here's Justice Barrett. Because you do have a problem with explaining why these procedural limitations are okay, but substantive limitations are not. Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan both pointed to the court's precedents as problematic for the state legislature's claim of exclusive power over elections. Roberts noted that the U.S. Supreme Court nearly a century ago unanimously upheld laws giving governors power to veto election laws passed by the legislature. Ultimately, Justice Sotomayor grew so impatient with lawyer Thompson's argument that she let fly this comment. I'm done, Your Honor. Uh, yes, if you rewrite history, it's very easy to do. I'm not rewriting Lawyer Neil Katyal, representing groups is. of North Carolina voters, told the justices that the founders did not envision 
an all-powerful state legislature unconstrained by courts and governors. Frankly, I'm not sure I've ever come across a theory in this court that would invalidate more state constitutional clauses as being federally unconstitutional, hundreds of them from the founding to today. The blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones. For the most part, the argument eventually centered on how to let states do what they've always done, decide issues involving their own state constitutions, but with some constraints. Chief Justice Roberts referred to the provision of the North Carolina Constitution requiring a system of free and fair elections. Do you think the phrase fair and free elections is providing standards and guidelines? Yes, replied lawyer Katyal, and indeed some of those provisions are analogous to general provisions in the federal Constitution, like the right of free speech or equal protection of the law, he said. So the idea that you could just nullify those by saying they're too abstract is really problematic. Following Katyal to the lectern was lawyer Donald Verrilli representing the governor and other state officers who oppose what they see as a naked power grab by the state legislature. He was pressed for a standard that would allow state courts to decide state constitutional questions but have some limits, or as Justice Alito put it, Is your standard a standard that can be flunked? Yes, replied Verrilli, but it would have to be a naked declaration that a um, that an act of a legislature under a free and fair elections clause is unfair um, without any grounding in history or precedent. A decision in the case is expected by summer. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Americans everywhere are going to be gathering with their families and other loved ones to celebrate the holidays. But what should we be doing to keep everyone safe from illness? COVID cases have been on the rise after Thanksgiving. The respiratory virus RSV has been surging for weeks, sending kids to emergency rooms. And flu cases are exploding. Flu hospitalizations for this time of year are higher than they have been in a decade. So how to navigate this so-called triple-demic as the holidays approach? Well, we're going to put that question now to CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me, Elsa. So I want to start with what seems to be kind of just a common sense measure against all three viruses right now, and that is masking. Like here in L.A. County, the public health director, Barbara Ferrer, said just this week that, quote, everybody should just go ahead and put those masks on when they're indoors. Do you agree with that guidance? You know, so we have always said when we released our COVID-19 community levels um, back in February that the things were, were on the downward trend and that was really good news, but that we wanted you to put your masks away, not to throw your masks out. And so um, as we see re-entry into respiratory virus season, as areas around the country are turning from green to yellow to orange, we have said um, orange really does indicate that there is a lot of infection in the community, that there's a lot of severe disease coming into the hospital and that many of the beds in the hospitals are really now occupied by people with COVID-19. Um, so protect to protect communities um, in those circumstances at those high levels, we have recommended and continue to recommend that those uh, communities wear masks. I mean, why isn't the CDC more strongly recommending masking in public places right now during the so-called triple-demic? So we have been recommending masking, as I said, in areas um, with high COVID-19 community levels. And we have certainly always said that masking is a personal choice. You don't need 
need to wait for CDC's recommendation, certainly, to wear a mask. We recommend wash your hands, stay home when you're sick, stay away from people who are sick, take a COVID test if you have symptoms, go present to your physician for other tests, um, like for RSV or influenza. If you have symptoms, go to areas with high ventilation. And it is one of those important areas um, that we can use um, to protect ourselves in a layered prevention mechanism. Maybe I will say another really important one, and mm -hmm. I'm going to guess you're going to get to this, is vaccination. I will, but I have another question before I get to vaccination. Sure. Well, when it comes to people who are 70 or over, I mean, COVID hospitalizations are rising sharply for that group. Why isn't mm -hmm. the CDC mm -hmm. putting out more forceful messaging about protecting older people from COVID this season? The messaging that we're using in terms of protecting older people from COVID, but also from other respiratory pathogens and including influenza and RSV, both of which impact um, older people with more severity as well, is prevention mechanisms such as flu vaccine and COVID vaccination, really critically important. We only have about 33% of people over the age of 65 who've gotten that bivalent vaccine this season. Yeah. And we know that that's going to be really important for-, so, so for what, um, what is being done to increase vaccine? among that particular group, people who are 70 years or older. So we're going uh, back to a lot of the trusted messengers, back to the community, making sure that those vaccines are available, working with our long-term care facilities, working with the community, doing education, working with the hospital community, the medical community, to really reiterate the importance of these vaccines, um, as well as to demonstrate the data of um, how well these vaccines are working. These latest bivalent COVID boosters, I mean, how well do you think they will work given the fact that they target subvariants that really aren't dominant anymore, right? Um, we know that, you know, as variants have progressed, they have evaded immunity more and more. So do we anticipate that they're going to have the same rates of protection as they did for the original strain? Not necessarily. Do we believe that they will maintain some protection against infection? Yes, we actually reported on that. And then some more protection against hospitalization, severe disease? Yes. And so that's really the goal. Well, turning to RSV, what do you see happening with those infections? Like, are we past the peak at this point? We have seen um, a, certainly a surge in cases, a rise in cases. Uh, my um, my heart and, and respect and gratitude to all of our healthcare workers who are working hard through this season, not just for respiratory viruses in children, but through across the board. Around the country, we're seeing now decreases in rates of RSV, fortunately, in the south, south central, even in the... Um, Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic region. And so we are hopeful that those trends will continue. Well, finally, may I just ask you, what precautions is your own family going to be taking this holiday season? Like, will you be personally masking up at the supermarket or just avoiding large gatherings in general? What are you and your family doing? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important to sort of go back to the basics of the things that we know that we can do to protect ourselves. So the first thing is what can you do in advance? And that is to get your COVID-19 vaccine, get your influenza vaccine, um, and, and to do so now because you'll be protected. If you get it now, you'll be protected by the holidays and we really want people to gather. Second, unfortunately, if you have symptoms, if you are feeling unwell, we are gonna ask you to stay home. Um, we uh, are saying we don't really 
really want people to gather if they're feeling unwell. We'll open the windows for people, um, increase ventilation if we can. Um, and then if there's a large gathering, consider wearing a mask. Um, we also, you know, we'll consider doing testing before we all gather. And then finally, and really important is that, um, and my family knows this, I wanna make sure every family knows this. If you do get those symptoms, call your providers early because there are tests, not just for COVID-19, but also for influenza. And if you di are diagnosed early, we have antivirals that can be used to shorten your disease course and your disease severity. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, thank you very much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. On Wall Street today, not a lot of movement. The Dow ended flat at 33,598. S&P notched a fifth day of losses. It was down two-tenths of a percent to close at 39.34. The Nasdaq lost just about a half percent to end the day at 10,959. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.23. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Lyric Stage, presenting The Play That Goes Wrong. Part Monty Python, part Sherlock Holmes, all mayhem, now through December 18th. Tickets at lyricstage.com. And German International School Boston. Visit their traditional German holiday market and open house on December 10th. Learn more at gisbos.org. The gloomy weather should make an exit tomorrow. Until then, we're in for more showers and patchy fog for several more hours than tonight. Clouds should clear out. Temperatures should fall to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny skies up around 50 degrees for a lovely day. Sunshine Friday as well, but with a chill in the air, only in the low 40s. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. Please do give right now and talk about a common goal. We have thousands of people who have something in common. They have all given to WBUR during this end-of-the-year fund drive. They're getting tax deductions thanks to their gift to WBUR, and we hope if you have yet to pledge, you will do so now because we're only doing this fundraiser until 7 o'clock tonight. It ends at 7 o'clock, and we have done very well so far. We had a slow period before, but you have caught us up. 
I'm Lisa Mullins with Anthony Brooks. Tell us the latest, Anthony. Yeah, so this is what happens when we band together for a common goal. Uh, thanks to the generosity of hundreds and hundreds of listeners, we have raised $798,000. That means we're just a few contributions away. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's really fantastic news and, and huge thanks to everyone who has given. Um, still a little ways to go, but it means that we are very close to crossing over our goal. So be part of this. Keep this service strong at a time when it's never mattered more. Um, we want to finish this fundraiser. There's just an hour and a half to go, um, but we are very, very close to reaching our goal thanks to you. So um, push us over that line by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. And if you wonder where your money is going, you don't have to look too hard. Here's one example from WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel about one story that she did that exemplifies the type of journalism that your support makes possible. I was in the kitchen washing dishes, watching testimony from a state house hearing that happened earlier in the day. The topic they were talking about was wheelchairs, and the testimony was just so striking, I stopped doing the dishes and I began taking notes. I felt very vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. Researchers estimate that more than half of wheelchairs break down in any typical six-month period, and it regularly takes months to get a chair fixed. And the guy opens the package in front of me, and it's the wrong part. And it always is the wrong part. After the story aired, I heard from dozens of listeners, and many weren't wheelchair users themselves. They just wanted to be part of a solution. I am Gabriela Emanuel, a health and science reporter here at WBUR. We want to tell you more stories like this one. If you can, please consider making a monthly gift at WBUR.org. That was WBUR's Gabriella Manuel talking about an important story she did earlier this year about wheelchairs and how they break down and, and how that leaves folks who use them, who depend on them. It was an important story. It was a human, it was full of human, real human experience and brought a really important issue to light. That's the kind of journalism that we're, we're devoted to. That's the kind of story that you help promote when you call 1-800-909-9287 and when you go to WBUR.org to make your contribution. And once again, we're counting down in this fun drive now. Uh, we have $798,000 that we have raised uh, we need to raise a total of 800000 by 7 o'clock tonight, so just about 90 more minutes. If you have not done your part, please do, because we rely on your contributions in aggregate for the vast majority of our operating budget. So be a part of something. Be a part of a greater good. When you know that you are listening to WBUR and we rely on you, we hope that you will decide what we're worth to you and put a dollar value on that, whether it is what you hear on the air 24-7, what you get 24-7 at WBUR.org, uh, an event at City Space that you might have attended, a podcast that you listen to, the news letters that you read. This is what WBUR provides for you with the, the, the greatest intent possible. And so because you rely on independent journalism, because you rely on smart communications, because we we entertain you, we edify you, we give you something to think about, something to talk about. We hope you will pledge your support right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Think of the many ways that WBUR contributes to your life, to your community. Think of the many times you've been stuck in the driveway let, trying to listen to the end of a story before stuck you Stuck in a went, good way. 
Good in a good way, absolutely. Um, think of the many times that you've said, you know, I heard this really interesting thing on the radio, and how it how it sparked a really interesting conversation. This is an important part of our community. We appreciate the way you support it, and we're asking you to just do it a, for a little longer. Call that number, get into the game, and this important fundraiser by calling one 909 928 Oh my lord, Lisa! <laughs> (laughs) only said it a thousand times and suddenly my brain went blank. Your call could be the call that pushes us over uh, into the goal line. So call now. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. In Moore County, North Carolina, the power is back for most of the 35,000 people left in the dark after a weekend attack on two Duke Energy Power substations. As for who was responsible for the attack, Moore County Sheriff Ronnie Fields says the investigation continues. Reaching out to all the folks in this area, anybody that may have a camera, door camera, any surveillance cameras, in and around these areas that were hit. Aberdeen, North Carolina Mayor Robert Farrell says the community has united in its response. Today is Pearl Harbor Day. That brought a whole nation together on that attack. And this attack has brought this entire county together and other regions also. Almost everyone now has their power back. Ukraine says that more than 30 of its diplomatic missions, mostly in Europe, have received suspicious packages in recent days. NPR's Greg Myrie reports. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kaleba, says all the packages have the same return address, a Tesla car dealership in Germany. He says the sender has taken precautions not to leave traces of DNA or other clues. Ukraine has stepped up security at its embassies and consulates and is investigating along with the other countries. The diplomatic missions are almost all in Europe, though the foreign minister says suspicious packages were also received in the U.S. and Kazakhstan. Some contained blood and the eyes of unidentified animals. In the most serious incident, a worker at Ukraine's embassy in Spain suffered hand injuries when opening a letter bomb. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Peru's President Pedro Castillo has been ousted by his nation's Congress after he sought to dissolve the legislative body. Vice President Dina Boluarte has replaced him. Wall Street, the Dow gained one and a half points today. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There was a series of missteps by the Federal Bureau of Prisons leading up to the murder of notorious gangster James Whitey Bulger. That's the conclusion of a Department of Justice Inspector General report who looked into the uh, the events leading up to Bulger's death in 2018. Bulger was killed less than 12 hours after he arrived at the federal prison in Hazleton, West Virginia. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The Inspector General's report notes that in the days leading up to Bulger's death, multiple prisoners sent or received phone calls indicating they were aware he was being transferred to Hazleton. Three inmates are charged in connection with his murder. The report concludes Bureau of Prison officials did not have improper motivations in connection with Bulger's transfer and that those officials did not know of his notoriety nor did they consider his identity in making decisions about the transfer. 
The report also hints the 89-year-old Bulger may have had a death wish, noting a psychological assessment that he had lost the will to live, which may have affected his persistence upon arrival at Hazleton that he be placed in general population. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Boston-based furniture retailer Wayfair is suing several of its suppliers for an alleged fraud scheme. The suit alleges three companies that sold their furniture through Wayfair delivered empty packages to customers. The companies then sought reimbursement from Wayfair for the products. Wayfair officials say the suppliers cost the company at least $1.5 million over four years. Attorneys for Wayfair filed a complaint last month in Suffolk County Superior Court. A Wayfair spokesperson wouldn't comment on the specifics of the case. WBUR has reached out to the suppliers named in the suit for comment. Winters are warming in much of New England at a faster rate than in the nation as a whole. That's a finding of a new analysis of federal temperature data from the research organization Climate Central. It found that since 1970, climate change pushed up average winter temperatures in Burlington, Vermont, more than anywhere else in the country. That city saw a 7-degree jump compared to the national average of 3.3 degrees. Boston's winter warming fell short of the national average with a 3-degree hike. It is 57 degrees now in the Boston area. Cloudy and damp into the nighttime. Some showers, even thunderstorms overnight before clouds move out. Should be about 44 overnight. Then tomorrow sunny, pretty nice, up around 51. Friday should bring back the sunshine, but it should be chilly only in the low 40s. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at progressivecommercial.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Over the course of only a few hours today, Peru's president, Pedro Castillo, announced the installation of an emergency government and attempted to dissolve Congress and impose a curfew. This breathtaking pace of events happened just ahead of a third attempt by lawmakers to impeach him, a vote that went through rapidly this time, almost unanimously. Castillo has been in power for just over a year, but even in that short time frame, the leftist president has proven to be deeply unpopular. For more on this quickly evolving story, we're joined now by journalist Simeon Tegel, who is in Lima. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on. Hi. Okay, so let me make sure I understand everything that's happened within just the past several hours. Castillo has been arrested and replaced with a new president. Is that the latest at this point? Yes, that's correct. He he uh, is now in custody and his vice president, Dina Boluarte, has been sworn in to take his place. OK, and tell us more about her. Like, do we expect her to last that long in this new position as president? That, that's a really good question. And there's a good chance she doesn't last very long. Um, there has been an ongoing political crisis in Peru, arguably for several years, but certainly ever since Pedro Castillo was sworn in in July last year, His party, Free Peru, claims to be Marxist-Leninist. The Congress is overwhelmingly conservative, even ultra-conservative, and there's just been this conflict between the two of them uh, ever since. 
Um, Dina Boluarte is on the same ticket. Uh, she was his running mate. So ideologically, at least, you would think that they would also be at loggerheads. But I think also most Peruvians want a break from this continual political conflict. And uh, members of Congress, if they're smart, uh, and there's a lot of people in Peru who would say that they aren't, but if they are, they might at least give her um, uh, a few months and hopefully a bit longer to establish herself. One of the interesting things also about Peru's system, it's a parliamentary presidential hybrid, mm -hmm. is that she's a president, but then she names a prime minister who names a cabinet. So what she could possibly do is name a prime minister who's more centrist and, and appoints a more centrist and uh, cabinet with figures who are a bit more uh, consensual than most of um, Pedro Castillo's very divisive and often extremist uh, uh, members, uh, ministers. So she could do that and then kind of uh, huh. slip into the background a little bit and be more a kind of as a president, take more of a kind of protocolary uh, role. A symbolic role. Well, can we just step back a moment? You've alluded to this, but tell us more about what led to this colossal downfall of President Castillo. I mean, what have been these substantial challenges during his tenure as president in just about the 50 seconds we have left? So on the one hand, there was this ideological rift between the president and Congress, with many of them not recognizing his, uh, his election victory as, as legitimate, although it was. But on the other hand, he's been a completely incompetent president. He claimed to be the president of the poor. But the truth is, he doesn't have a single achievement, policy achievement he can point to. And what, during his presidency, we now have half of all Peruvians who are suffering food insecurity. And he's done absolutely nothing about it. So... Um, his very political identity, his branding, mm -hmm. which has been about defending the poor, okay. he is, uh, he's completely failed to live up to that. All right. That is Simeon Tagle joining us from Lima, Peru. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, with art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this winter at newartcenter.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We hope you will call that number right now because we're ending this fun drive at 7 o'clock tonight. And we've got some really, really great news to tell you. I'm Lisa Mullins, Anthony Brooks. Yeah, spectacular news. We have raised $801,000 thanks to our listeners. And that means we've crossed uh, the goal line. We've reached yes. our goal. So thank that you is so much. fantastic news. And we thank each and every one of you who have called in or gotten online at WBUR.org uh, to make a contribution. Now, if you'd still like to give, uh, you can, and we hope you will, uh, because WBUR provides an essential service to hundreds of thousands of listeners in our region, and we, can, and we can't do it without your support. So we want to keep this service strong. But the news headline at this moment is that we've reached our goal. This fundraiser is going to go, I believe, for another hour and 20 minutes, unless we're told otherwise. So that means this is an opportunity when we can actually exceed our goal. But again, for all of you who have called in and made uh, this possible, thank you.
Thank you so much for understanding your role, and that means every one of you who has called in understanding your role. If you haven't, please do it right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Our costs are real. Our costs, of course, have only gone up in the past year or two, and that's, I'm sure, the same thing for you as well. So we understand that if you can't afford to pledge that you won't and you shouldn't, we hope you'll still listen. If you are in a position to be able to give and and listen to us, we hope hope that you'll understand we can't do this without you. And this is a kind of service unlike any other. This is not-for-profit journalism. We don't have commercial uh, backing, uh, an enormous company that backs us. What we do is we have you, our listeners, in aggregate, you make up the majority of our operating budget. It's not the government. The government makes up 3.7% of WBOR's budget. So please understand your role in this endeavor. And for the thousands of people who have given already in the fundraiser, thank you so much for putting us over over the top, $801,000 right now. And if you haven't given, please do it because that will keep us strong for the year to come. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I'm Lakshmi Singh from NPR. It has been a long year full of major news stories. The Supreme Court has eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. The January 6th committee has begun to lay out what it has learned about this morning as Ukrainians face down the reality of a Russian invasion. Britain's longest serving monarch has died at the age of 96. But there were also stories of resilience, discovery, and hope. The CDC has now signed off on COVID-19 vaccinations for infants, toddlers. The James Webb Telescope caught those images of ancient history, billions of Only one major theater out of nearly 500 across the country has gone out of business. Humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. The NPR network is here for you, and it takes all of us to make this coverage possible. Donate to the station today, and thank you. That's Lakshmi Singh of NPR urging you to donate uh, to the station by calling 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And we also want to savor this moment because the news at this hour is that we've reached our goal of $800,000. I guess we're up to $801,000, Lisa. Is but that, who's is counting, that right? But, right? Who's, but who's counting? Uh, but we are going to push forward because we had a... Um, we'd set a time of 7 o'clock tonight to end this fundraiser. So anything we get from this point on is in addition to the goal that we had set. Uh, thanks uh, to all of you who have called. So there's still time. If you want to get in on this fundraiser, now is the time to do it. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We really don't want to be in a position again where we're having to tell you that we are lagging in our fundraising goal. And that happened uh, yesterday. And it was it was pretty distressing because we know how much we rely on you. We try to convey how much we rely on you. And thank you to everybody who has contributed during the fun drive and in the past 24 hours for listening to our call and uh, and telling you that um, we can't really afford not to get the funding that we're asking you for. So thank you again if you've called. And if you haven't, you can fortify us even more right now with your phone call, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Your money, when you give it to WBUR, has impact on the air, online, on our newsletters, at City space in our podcast. It really does make a difference. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you.
WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Today, German special forces arrested 25 suspected far-right extremists over a plot to overthrow the government. Prosecutors say the group was influenced by the Reichsbürger, the Reich Citizens Movement. Its core belief is that Germany's modern democratic government is not legitimate, that the German Reich, which fell after World War I, still exists. It's had a reputation as a crackpot movement, but Germany's head of domestic intelligence says the group has grown in the last year, Substantially, and now presents a, quote, high level of danger. I want to bring in Katja Hoyer for more context on this. She's a German historian and author. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Do you agree with that assessment from Germany's domestic intelligence chief that this group is growing and dangerous? I think it is. I mean, the new thing that we've seen today is that it is sort of increasingly organized in terms of getting hold of weapons, in terms of networking with influential people, getting hold of funds. And that's a new level of professionalism that previous incarnations just didn't have. Hmm. Is it a cohesive movement? Do they have a clear leader? No, not at all. And this is, I think, something that has previously led to people underestimating it because it is very fractured. Some believe, as you said earlier, that the German Reich didn't fall at the end of the First World War and needs to be reinstated. Some of them set that date much later during the uh, occupation after the Second World War. And some of them have got outright neo-Nazi tendencies. Others want to restore the monarchy. So it's a, it's a very disunited movement that currently doesn't have one centralized leadership. I was reading some of your excellent writing on this, and among the points you make, which intrigues me, is that these people don't necessarily fit the stereotype you might have. They don't look like whatever your image of a neo-Nazi is. Who, who are these people? Yeah, that's right. And that's also, I think, one of the more dangerous elements of this is that they're not angry young men with shaved heads and black boots, you know, who go out and march. But a lot of the people, for instance, that were arrested today are judges, lawyers, teachers. That makes this movement somewhat invisible. So this might be the person that, you know, lives next to you or that teaches your children. So they've evolved, I would say, into a much, much more socially diverse movement from, you know, what people consider to be neo-Nazis in the 1990s. Are there connections between groups like this in Germany and the American far right and conspiracy theorists, groups like QAnon, for example? Yeah, QAnon is an interesting one because Germany is, in fact, the second largest community for, for the movement online. So in terms of the amount of people subscribing to QAnon channels, Germany is quite prolific in that respect. But it combines the, this idea that the state isn't legitimate with a pre-existing kind of conspiracy theory that you see with QAnon. So many people followed Trump and Trumpism in particular and, and sort of believed that Trump would finally come and sort of liberate Germany from foreign occupation. And he was the savior figure in, in many ways, as he is with the QAnon movement in the US. Fascinating. Germany, of course, has a unique relationship with the far right, a unique history. I was born in Germany. I've spent time there. I have always been struck by how generations of Germans have worked to distance themselves from, from the Nazi party, from World War II history. When you look at Germany today, what strikes you about the ability of the far right to, to find traction? Well, I think what you just said about, you know, the post-war culture of Germany is true for the vast, vast majority of Germans. It's easy to forget now in the 
kind of media coverage created by the arrests this morning that they are in fact still relatively small amounts of people that we're talking about here. The reason I think why it's still a sizable movement, those conspiracy circles, is because many communities in Germany feel somewhat disenfranchised. There's a long history, as there is in the US, of skepticism towards centralized government. I think that's a residual thing that always exists and it breaks out at times of crisis like we are currently experiencing. German historian and writer Katia Hoyer. Her latest book is Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. Thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. The words Santa's sleigh take on an ominous double meaning in the new film, Violent Night. Time for some season's beatings. The movie killed at the box office over the weekend, grossing more than $13 million. It's part of an unholy subgenre of scary holiday movies and reminded NPR's Netta Ulibi of one of her earlier reports. Scary Christmas movies are a catharsis for some people, including Michael Doherty. Christmas is really stressful. I think we can all admit that. We put all these pressures on ourselves to spend time with your friends and your family and spend all this money that we don't necessarily have. Doherty is a director. I talked to him back in 2015 when his movie Krampus came out. It's based on a frightening figure from German folklore, kind of an evil Santa Claus. Darkness lies deep in this holiday's DNA, says Doherty, starting with King Herod's slaughter of the innocents in the Bible and including Charles Dickens. One of the most iconic Christmas stories is a spooky, eerie ghost story, and that's a Christmas carol. Humbug, I tell you. Humbug. That is a dark story. Or a certain holiday ballet with sugar plums and a dancing evil rat king. Nutcrackers terrified Michael Doherty as a kid. They have such manic expressions with the bared teeth and these really wide, crazy eyeballs. These frightening figures perhaps provide release from a sense of forced gaiety and from seasonal anxieties about being unhappy or alone. Maybe that explains the dozens and dozens of Christmas-themed horror movies. (laughs) Oh, it's a thing. It's a big thing. That's Hannah Foreman, a horror movie expert. You have Silent Night, Deadly Night, Silent Night, Bloody Night, Jack Frost, Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys, A Cadaver Christmas, Silent Night, Zombie Night. Should I keep going? No, Santa, no, Santa. No, that's okay, thanks. Foreman says most of these movies are exploitative and cheaply made. But she says one from 1974 called Black Christmas is both underrated and influential. It's considered by some to be one of the first slasher films in the U.S. With sorority girls fighting a psycho killer while carolers sing outside. And it may be the first to use a now classic horror movie trope. The caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Black Christmas was directed by Bob Clark, who was also responsible for one of the most beloved Christmas movies of all time. Ah! A Christmas Story from 1983 featured a memorably monster-like bully. He had yellow eyes, so help me God, yellow eyes. So there's a guy who really loved Christmas but also understood both sides of it. Director Michael Doherty says his film Krampus was partly inspired by another 1980s movie that mixed Christmas with horror, Gremlins. 
Scary Christmas movies speak to an era of rampant commercialism, brutal class inequality, and bitter cultural divides. They reflect our Yule time fears. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. When you support public media, you are supporting independent information. Might not always like it, but you'll know that it's delivered in your interest. The facts that citizens need so that we can do our jobs as citizens. Thanks for making WBUR possible. Thank you so much for making WBUR possible, as thousands and thousands of people have just in this fund drive. Thank you so much for your contributions. We have raised, you have raised for us, that is, $803,000, and that puts us over the top in this fundraising effort. We are not stopping because the fundraiser ends at 7 o'clock, as we promised it would, and because your individual phone calls right now make us that much stronger, and that's what we want, so we can serve you as as, uh, best as we possibly can with the news that you hear on the air, what you hear uh, at, and see and read at WBUR.org, what you hear in the podcast, everything that you get from WBUR comes right back to you when you make a donation. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, by the way, with Anthony Brooks. Hey, Lisa, what a what a difference 24 hours makes because you and I were sitting here uh, last night at this time and we were in a bit of a hole and really pleading with listeners to, to kind of step up and get off the bench and really get get in the game, and everybody did, and we're delighted. So as Lisa said, we've uh, reached our goal. This fundraiser will end in about an hour at 7 o'clock, and until then, if you'd still like to give, uh, you can, and we hope you will. Uh, You know that WBUR provides an essential service to hundreds of thousands of listeners in our region, and we can't do it without listener support. We're delighted that we're at $803,000. That's $3,000 beyond our goal. That sets us up well for the next next sort of fiscal chapter, if you will. But you can be uh, still be a part of this fundraiser by calling one 800 909 9287 or going to WBUR.org. Every single call, every single pledge makes us stronger. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you again. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation. See Dispatch's Chadwick Stokes and his band The Pintos at the House of Blues on December 10th with support from the Righteous Babes. LiveNation.com. On this day, 50 years ago, Apollo 17 left Earth. We have ignition, two, one, zero, we have a liftoff. It was NASA's last mission to send astronauts to the dusty lunar surface. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce reports that this anniversary comes as NASA is closer than ever to going back. Only 12 people have ever walked on the moon. The Apollo 17 astronauts didn't just walk. Sometimes they rode in a high-tech moon buggy, and sometimes they strolled. I was strolling on the moon one day in a merry, merry month of December. 
That's Harrison Schmidt and Eugene Cernan. They explored the moon for three days, traveling more than 20 miles. At the end of their final excursion on December 14th, Harrison Schmidt climbed a ladder into their return spacecraft. Eugene Cernan got ready to do the same. We leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return. With peace and hope for all mankind. The pair of moonwalkers knew they'd be the last for a while, but they had no idea that decades would pass. Their memories of the moon remained vivid. Harrison Schmidt once told me he could recall walking in a lunar valley with mountains all around. They were illuminated by as brilliant a sun as you can imagine. And uh, of course, hanging over the southwestern mountain was this apparently small planet that we call the Earth. A photograph of the Earth, the entire round globe looking like a marble, is one of the most important legacies of the Apollo 17 mission. That image was taken up by the environmental movement. It was on the whole Earth catalog. It's one of the most reproduced images in history. Teasel Muir Harmony is curator of the Apollo collection at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. She shows me around its brand new lunar exploration hall and points out that, except for the first moon landing, the Apollo program wasn't that popular with the public, which was focused on other things. The Vietnam War in particular uh, was something that would have been competing with headlines uh, during the Apollo 17 mission. Major developments were happening in the Vietnam War during this mission. Having achieved the Cold War goal of a moon landing, politicians were no longer willing to shoulder the Apollo program's high costs and risks. But now, the space agency is poised to return to the moon in the not-so-distant future. NASA's new moonshot is called Artemis, after Apollo's twin sister. One of the things that bodes very well for Artemis is that this is a program that has uh, sustained support through multiple administrations. She says that hasn't been true for earlier programs that aimed at the moon. This time, NASA actually has a space capsule that's currently on its first test trip around the moon. It's due to return to Earth on Sunday. The first flight with astronauts is planned for 2024. Shortly after that, NASA wants to land the first woman and first person of color on the lunar surface. At the museum, Muir Harmony shows me a glass case with Eugene Cernan's overshoes, which he wore while making his final lunar footprints. They look like, you know, the winter moon boots that you've seen, um, and, uh, but yet they have those traces of the experience of walking on the lunar surface. There's gray moon dust embedded in the white fabric. They look good, perfectly preserved, like someone could just slip them on and go for a stroll. Reporter Emily Schwing, this is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story, directed by Michael Showalter. In select theaters, everywhere Friday. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 
92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court is weighing today's arguments in a major case that could radically reshape the way federal elections are run across the country. NPR's Hansi Luong has more. This redistricting case out of North Carolina could end up with the U.S. Supreme Court endorsing a once fringe theory. In its most extreme form, it claims state legislatures can control how congressional elections are conducted with no limits from state courts or state constitutions. Justice Elena Kagan said it's a theory with big consequences. This is a proposal that gets rid of the normal checks and balances on the way big governmental decisions are made in this country. And you might think that it gets rid of all those checks and balances at exactly the time when they are needed most. The court is expected to rule by early July. Anzi Luang, NPR News, Washington. As a measure dubbed the Respect for Marriage Act moves closer to final passage, attention has mostly been focused on the protection the law gives to same-sex couples, where the bill also would enshrine interracial marriages into federal law. Provision came as a surprise to some interracial couples who believed any legal uncertainty about their status ended in 1967 when the Supreme Court struck down state laws banning marriage between people of different races. However, it was added due to the fact the Supreme Court recently overturned the federal right to abortion, heightening fears other precedent-setting rulings might also be reconsidered. Senate Republicans have inserted language in a must-pass defense spending bill that would remove the COVID vaccine mandate for military personnel. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports GOP lawmakers have been trying to reverse the mandate. Language in the National Defense Authorization Act released Tuesday includes a provision to rescind the vaccine mandate despite objections from the Pentagon. Republican senators like Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee had threatened to hold up the spending bill. She echoed unfounded concerns raised by other senators on Fox News. Bear in mind, COVID vaccine is not like um, any of those vaccines you think of with polio or smallpox. This is a shot. Blackburn's office has not clarified what makes the COVID vaccine different from at least eight other service members must take. The legislation would not reinstate those who were discharged for refusing to take the COVID vaccine. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Just weeks after former Thanos head Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced to more than 11 years in prison, a judge has sentenced the former president of the company to nearly 13 years in jail. Sentenced for Ramesh Sonny Balwani on his conviction of defrauding investors and patients and lying about the technology behind the blood testing startup. Balwani and Holmes had a personal and business relationship with the pair playing a key role in one of Silicon Valley's biggest scandals. Stocks bounced around today. The Dow was up just a point. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Federal Bureau of Prisons failed to protect Whitey Bulger's health and safety before his death in custody in 2018. That's the finding of an investigation by the Office of the Inspector General into Bulger's care and his transfer to the West Virginia facility where he was killed. The Justice Department reports as management failures made Bulger's transfer to the prison widely known within the facility. Bulger was beaten to death hours after he arrived. 
Three prisoners are charged with his killing. An acted man who tried to defraud the U.S. government out of $50 million in grants for energy projects, clean energy projects, faces seven years in prison. 50-year-old Christopher Condren was sentenced yesterday. He and others submitted fraudulent grant applications for projects that were never done. And the city of Boston is launching a new tourism campaign focused on drawing people to the city year-round. The campaign is called Boston Never Gets Old, and it stresses the timelessness of the city. As part of the effort, the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau is also changing its name to Meet Boston. In the forecast, cloudy and damp through the early hours tonight. Some showers, maybe some thunderstorms as well. Eventually, clouds should move out tonight. Should be around 44 degrees overnight. Then tomorrow, sunny, pretty nice, up around 51. Friday should bring back the sunshine, but it should be chilly only in the low 40s. This is WBUR. It's 6.05. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Many stories to come ahead, including police in Germany who have arrested 25 people who are allegedly planning to overthrow the government. You count on WBUR for the news headlines. You count on WBUR for stories that are entertaining um, and informative. And we're hoping that that's why you will give right now, because this fundraiser is in its last hour. We have 54 minutes to go in the fund drive before it ends, and we would like to include you in on the fund drive. And we are so happy to say that we have made our goal and we are really, really grateful to all of you who have called because we've accomplished a lot over the past couple of days only with your help. 1-800-909-9287 is the number if you haven't called or WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. With me is Anthony Brooks. Yeah, and the headline right now is that we have surpassed our goal of $800,000. We've raised a little more than that now and so we will stop this fundraiser no matter what at 7, but if you haven't uh, given yet, there's still time. Uh, we're overjoyed here at WBUR that we've raised the money. It didn't look like we were going to do it 24 hours ago. And what we've accomplished here over the past few days is a real testament to our community, a real testament to your dedication at WBUR and your commitment to real journalism and how important it is to our community and indeed our country. So you still have some time to be part of this before we wrap things up at 7 o'clock. If you'd like to, you can still give. What you do will have tremendous meaning for thousands and thousands of people. So be a part of this and keep in mind that, again, lots of small contributions in this case add up to more than $800,000. So don't think for a minute that uh, what you can contribute, whatever it is, isn't going to make a difference. It is. So give us a call, 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And your money has a powerful impact, in fact. I think when we were uh, yesterday um, way behind, in fact, and it was a little bit worrisome for us, and we told you that in the next uh, 18 hours, I think, we received one major contribution from a generous listener and many, many more modest contributions. And that's really what has done it. That's what gave us the head start today, early today, to allow us to make the entire amount that we need in this fund drive. So if you have not yet given, please understand that is your contribution that makes WBUR what it is, that keeps us strong, that brings you the news. So claim some responsibility and accountability for that, especially claim some credit, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. The fundraiser is over at seven o'clock. Don't let it end without you. Thank you so much.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where Georgia Democrat Raphael Warnock will return victorious to his U.S. Senate seat. He won yesterday's runoff against his Trump-backed challenger, Herschel Walker. It is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. Joining us now to talk takeaways from this runoff is Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler. Hey there. Hey there. So I'm going to start with one of my takeaways. This is my home state. And it seems like this was a chance for Georgia to solidify its battleground status. Georgia, we know, flipped the Senate with a pair of runoffs two years ago, but different circumstances. Lay out what you think this runoff result will mean for Democrats. Well, the stakes are different than what you just mentioned when the Democrats flip control of the Senate. For starters, the control was already decided. This is a 51st seat for a Democrat, so there's a little bit less pressure. Um, but it's important still, Mary Louise, because there's no more power sharing on committees, no need for Vice President Harris to be a tiebreaker, and it's one more seat ahead of a less promising map in 2024. And in Georgia, it's a big deal as well because Republicans won at the statewide level. Democrats have won at the federal level. So it just keeps Georgia in the mix. I mean, it's really interesting to see. One of the reasons Warnock and Democrats won the last time is because the Republican base stayed home because of Donald Trump's false election fraud claims. This time, moderate Republicans stayed home or voted for Warnock because of the way Warnock made the election about comparing himself and his character against his opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I want to stay with Republicans in Georgia and some of the changes that they signed into effect last year, this sweeping voting overhaul, which shortened this runoff period from nine weeks to just four. How did changes like that impact voting in this race in the end? So Georgia did pass a 98-page voting law that shifted more people to voting early in person and less by mail or on election day. This shortened runoff window kicked that into overdrive. Nearly nine 1.9 million people voted before Election Day. That led to longer lines at fewer early voting sites and also to a huge Election Day turnout as people waited until Tuesday and hoped they could have a shorter wait. Early voting also made a big difference in counties that were able to offer more days. Notably, more people voted on those optional days, mainly in urban Democratic strongholds, than the final margin of victory between Walker and Warnock. And... Let's talk about what this might mean for Georgia politics moving forward, because these midterms have been a mixed bag. As you know, Republicans, including the governor, Brian Kemp, won in the general election. But then, of course, you have Warnock and Democrats notching this victory in the runoff. Well, Georgia will definitely remain a key player on the national stage for the next several years. The Democrats are pushing to have it be an earlier state in the 2024 presidential primary calendar, and they might hold their convention here. But the party's still struggling with state-level elections. Republicans see both positives and negatives of Donald Trump's continued Mm -hmm. influence. It's safe to say the battles in Georgia reflect the future of American politics. Georgia Public Broadcasting, Stephen Fowler. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.
In Germany, police have arrested 25 people they believe were plotting to overthrow the government. One of the things that they were allegedly planning to do, storm the German parliament, the Bundestag. The suspects are members of various far-right extremist groups, some even inspired by QAnon. And we're joined now by Esme Nicholson from Berlin, who has more details. Hey, Esme. Hi. Okay, so these arrests, I know that they occurred during raids across Germany this morning, and police investigations are still underway, but... What can you tell us about the suspects so far and what they were allegedly planning to do? Well, the raids targeted 52 people suspected of plotting a violent coup against the government that was to include targeted killings of politicians and senior public servants. Federal prosecutors say there are indications the group was planning to storm the Bundestag with a small army. And uh, police have detained 25 of the suspects who come from a number of far-right groups, including the so-called Reichsbürger, which is a movement uh, that doesn't recognise the modern German state and wants to abolish democracy. Others, others are members of the so-called Querdenker scene, which is a QAnon-inspired movement and really emerged during the pandemic and consists mainly of radicalised corona deniers um, who adhere to conspiracy theories. And I understand that the alleged leader of all these disparate groups is someone who goes by Prince Heinrich Thirteenth. Who is this person? Yes, according to prosecutors, a 71-year-old man who goes by the name of Prince Heinrich XIII of Royce was allegedly going to be installed as the new leader of Germany. He's a descendant of Germany's monarchy, which of course was abolished by the Weimar Republic a century ago. But this ringleader rejects any form of German Republic and doesn't recognise the fact that his title is meaningless in today's Germany. Prosecutors say that he had started to nominate ministers for a post-coup government, uh, including a former German army paratrooper as head of his military arm. They also say he contacted Russian officials in a bid to involve them in his new order in Germany, but that there is no indication that there was a positive reaction to that request. Mm. And we're hearing now that these suspects have strong links to Germany's security services. What do we know about that? Well, the federal prosecutor didn't go into detail about this during his press conference today, but the German press is citing unnamed intelligence sources who say an active Bundeswehr soldier, an active armed forces soldier, and a number of reservists are under investigation. The active soldier is reportedly a member of the KSK, the, which is the German army's elite force, uh, where far-right sympathisers have previously been discovered. And according to these sources, one of the raids this morning took place at their barracks, although prosecutors are yet to confirm or deny this. A number of police officers and former soldiers are also believed to be among those under investigation. But again, there's no confirmation from federal prosecutors on this particular point. Prosecutors did, however, confirm that a sitting Berlin judge was arrested this morning. Prosecutors believe she was to be installed as the new justice minister. Wow. Okay, well, right-wing extremism is not new in Germany, of course. How much of a surprise was today's news to people there? Well, the Reichsburger scene is widely known about and considered dangerous. Uh, the QAnon-inspired Querdenker are also very vocal. So it doesn't come as a surprise here. That said, you know, this was the biggest terrorism raid in, I think, living memory. Mm. More than 3,000 officers were involved. And uh, the details are pretty chilling. So we're seeing a crackdown on the far right. Uh, and today, Germany's domestic intelligence chief, Thomas Haldenwang 
said the Reichsburg scene has seen a significant uptick in membership just over the past year. Um, domestic intelligence believes there are about 21,000 members. That might seem like a small number, perhaps, uh, among 80 million Germans, uh, but they are taking the threat seriously. What isn't clear at this stage of the investigation, though, is just how capable this group would have been in their aims to stage a coup and, and how many weapons they had actually amassed. Chilling. That is Esme Nicholson reporting from Berlin. Thank you, Esme. Thank you for having me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. In business, not a lot of movement on Wall Street. The Dow ended flat at 33,598. S&P notched a fifth day of losses. It was down two-tenths of a percent to close at 39.34. And the Nasdaq lost about a half percent to end the day at 10,959. In the forecast, heavy on the clouds through the evening and should have showers off and on, maybe some thunderstorms as well. Gradually, the clouds should clear out overnight tonight. Overnight lows about 44. Then tomorrow, a beautiful day sounds like. Sunny and relatively mild, about 51 for a high. Friday, sunny and brisk, only about 43 degrees tops. 57 degrees now in Boston at 618. WBUR supporters include New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour day this Saturday, neiacademy.org. This is 90.9 WBUR, taking a very short amount of time right now. Just to give you an update in the fund drive, we are so grateful that with your help, uh, we you have turned around this fundraiser in just the past 24 hours. 24 hours ago, Anthony Brooks and I were sitting here uh, with furrowed brows, a little bit worried <laughs> that we may not make the fund drive. The we didn't total go home amount. to bed. We just stayed here. <laughs> we just wept. stayed here. <laughs> and uh, that's that's pretty close to the truth. And, um, and we're so happy to say that as of this morning, things turned around. We got one major grant, but we got a gift, but we got so many calls from listeners like you who pledged their support. And Anthony, we're happy to say that we've made the goal. Yeah, right. And the goal was $800,000, which is a lot of money. And most of that is raised by small contributions from listeners like you. We uh, surpassed that goal about an hour ago. So now we're over $800,000, which is fantastic news. This fundraiser will end at 7. So that means you have a little more time if you want to join uh, your fellow listeners and get in on this moment, which is a really happy one here at WBUR. And, and, I, and, and I should say as well, happy for BUR listeners, because it means we have the commitment of the audience of listeners out there who understand the value of the station and the service we bring them. And that means a lot to us. Um, it's really important that we get that message from you. And I know it's important for you that we're still here because you're you're listening. And so this is a this is a big moment for us and, and one that uh, we want to thank you for. But again, another 40 minutes to go. If you want to get in on this fundraiser, you can do so right now. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And for those of you who've already <clears throat> given, please know how much we appreciate that you appreciate the bond between a public radio listeners and the station itself. And the station is only as powerful as you let us be. And that means you as listeners and you as contributing listeners. So if you haven't had a chance to give, please do something that is 
meaningful for you because you get such a reward back 24-7 from WBUR and meaningful for us because we have the money to make it happen. So your gift has impact. If you haven't given, please consider a $10 a month gift, $15 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can reasonably afford. And know that when you hear All Things Considered or Marketplace or On Point, Here and Now, Radio Boston, Morning Edition, these all of these programs are made possible with your funds. That's the kind of impact that your money has. Right. And what we're really uh, asking you to support is this idea of independent journalism as really one of the pillars, I mean, a key foundation to our democracy. It's nothing less than that. And the funding model where we come to you and say, please give what you can is intrinsic to that um, that core product that we bring you. It's public journalism. It's not supported by commercial interest. It's supported by you. So your donations mean literally everything. So thank you for everything you've done in this fundraiser. If you still want to get in on it, give us a call, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. This past summer, President Biden went to Saudi Arabia, addressed a summit of Arab leaders, and made a promise. The promise was that America would stay engaged in the region, not leave a vacuum to be filled by Russia or China. Well, today, China's leader, Xi Jinping, arrived in the Saudi capital for meetings and his own summit on Friday. The visit offers a glimpse into how the U.S.-China rivalry is playing out in the Middle East. NPR's Aya Batrawi joins me now from Dubai. Hey there, Aya. Hi. Hi. All right. I want to start with the two leaders at the center here, Xi Jinping and his host, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Why might each of these men want this summit now? So for Xi, this is his first trip abroad since rare protests broke out in China against his government's COVID-19 policies. So this is a chance for him to bring back focus to China's power and its influence in a part of the world that is crucial to Beijing's economic survival because of oil. This relationship is also based on a mutual understanding that neither side is going to be raising concerns over human rights. You'll recall that President Biden did raise the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and his meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman over the summer. Khashoggi was killed by Saudi agents in Turkey four years ago. So for Prince Mohammed bin Salman, this visit is another opportunity to move beyond the global outcry over that killing and to demonstrate that he's able to bring the world's most powerful leaders to his doorstep. Okay, so that's what each of these leaders might be looking for. What about substantive issues? What does China want from the region? For one thing, China is the Gulf's biggest buyer of oil. The two are economically interdependent. China is also seeking a range of new investments in Saudi Arabia and to expand its footprint from East Asia to Europe. So it's going to be looking to invest in ports, tourism, mining, technology, and weapons. Um, Saudi Arabia is trying to move away from its dependence on oil exports, create its own nuclear program, create a local defense industry. And China is seen as a really important partner in all those industries. But at its core, this relationship is about energy security. I spoke with John Calabrese, who heads the Mideast Asia Project at the Middle East Institute in Washington. Insofar as the future of oil, I think we're looking at not just one decade, but several decades out before oil will be phased out you know, in any large consuming country, China being one of them. So, I mean, the bottom line here is that China is tethered 
to the Middle East, to the Gulf in particular, specifically because of its energy security needs. Stay with that point he just made about how China is tethered to the Middle East, uh, because I want to broaden this out. If you look at Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries, other Arab leaders, what are they looking for from this visit? So this is a region, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, that's being led by relatively young new leaders who are really trying to assert a new autonomy and independence. And what that means is that while they still heavily rely on the United States for their national security needs and their weapon sales, they're refusing to pick sides in this global competition between the United States on one side and China or Russia on the other. And Xi's visit is an example of how they refuse to be pulled to any one side. I've spoken to Gulf officials here over the years, and they've been saying that there's a perception that the United States is an unreliable partner and that there's major swings in foreign policy from Republicans to Democrats, and that continues to be a major concern for them. That uh, is NPR's Aya Batrawi reporting from Dubai. Thank you. Thanks. If you follow the money in college football these days, you will see coaches get scooped up from new universities while still under contract with another school. And the amount of money we're talking about is staggering. We're talking tens of millions of dollars. To help us understand what is driving all of this is Liz Clark, who's been covering this for The Washington Post and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, and thanks for tackling this thorny topic. Oh, thank you for helping us. So, (laughs) you know, for those of us who are not closely watching these contract buyouts for college coaches, just tell us about how much money are schools generally paying coaches to leave their current teams early? So the amount colleges feel it's worth to pay someone to go away is escalating right in step with the escalation of revenues that are going into college football and they're obscene going straight up with no sign of ending. So some buyouts are worth 10 million, 11, uh, even 15 million to pay a coach to go away and not coach. Well, let me ask you this. When did this shift, paying these huge sums Mm. of money for contract buyouts, when did that first start happening? A lot of the data I may quote comes from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. The Knight Commission sees an uptick or a starting point when the college football playoff system began and networks started pouring money um, into colleges for the right to broadcast this. Mm. Um, So that would have been, I believe, around 2014. And just this week, the College Football Playoff Organization announced at the start of the 2024 season, the playoff will go from four teams to 12. So they're going to triple the number of schools that can compete. And the estimates of what this will mean dollar-wise is that the money coming in for this playoff is going to quadruple to possibly $2 billion. Oh, my God. Insane. Okay, well, this Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics that you mentioned, I know that they found, for example, that over the first five weeks of this college football season, five Power Five coaches were fired with buyouts exceeding $55 million, right? Like, has the NCAA weighed in on this? No. And just this week, the Knight Commission really, you know, wagged a finger at the NCAA for dragging its feet. The Knight Commission is saying, you have got to spend this money for the benefit of the students, for their health, to preserve their safety, for their education, spend it on gender equity, spend it on whatever it takes to stop doing away with 
Olympic sports. Aren't athletic directors at these schools, the ADs, responsible for holding coaches to the full term of their contracts? Like, why haven't we seen ADs make coaches live up to the contracts that they have signed? Boy, in some cases, it's in the AD's interest to get rid of the coach, to torpedo the coach. Um, The athletic director may think, I'm going to get canned if my football coach keeps losing here. So I need to run him off and bring in this hot prospect, the guy who's going to get it done. When they have a hot prospect, the ADs often offer a contract extension to lock that coach down. Well, if revenue is expected to just continue ballooning for these college football programs, what is the next step that you are specifically going to be watching for in all of this? You know, as the money gets a bit more outrageous, you periodically hear calls that Congress should step in and set some limits and make some rules. There seems to be no appetite or traction for that. Um, I'm not sure university presidents have the will to draw any lines. So it may just be that the Power Five conferences just kind of spin off into this new entity outside the NCAA and are sort of a quasi-pro model and don't really worry too much if they're tethered to the education part of higher education. Liz Clark of The Washington Post, thank you so much for bringing all this context to such a complicated situation. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShare's Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities. LabShares.com.